Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super, super excited for this week's show. We have a big name guest on the show. He is a senior writer at Entertainment Weekly, and his first book, You've Got Red on You, How Shaun of the Dead Was Brought to Life, is available now. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Clark Collis. Hey, Clark. Patrick, so nice to uh, so nice to talk to you, and thank you so much for having me on the show. Except, except, here's the thing, here's the thing. I was honored and excited to be asked to be on the show, but then I was listening to your, uh, I think, your Midnight in the Switchgrass, Switchgrass uh, episode, <laughs> and because uh, I'm a regular, genuine regular listener, and right at the start, you're like, I guess we've just entered the, <laughs> hey, fuck it, thing about this movie, and I was like, well... As your next guest, I was hoping that maybe you could have stuck out, you know, I was, I was hoping to, to slip in, to slip, you know, in onto the show before you reach the fuck it, we'll just, you know, who, no. who just, I'm just going to lean out the window and see who's passing. <laughs> Listen, so, you know. we're still going to have prestige episodes like this one, even when we're doing Midnight in the Switchgrass episodes. <laughs> I like in your message that you said that we are America's premier Midnight in the Switchgrass podcast, which uh... I didn't I didn't want to Google to make sure that was true. I like <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't you know, I I, uh, I, I, I had a thought that maybe there was more. But also, I, the, I, I like the fact that you're only America's premier. Right. You know, yeah, globally, like, you know, we're, we're we don't even crack the top 10, unfortunately. But uh, here in America, in a... we're number one. <laughs> In Estonia, where I assume the film was shot, uh, <laughs> for, tax, for tax reasons. How no, is thank the... you. All, all seriousness, thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me on. And uh, it's really all downhill from from not for your podcast, but for this particular episode. <laughs> um, how is your book tour going? How is the release of the book going? This is very exciting. Well. It's all been great. Um, so I wrote a book, uh, wrote uh, You Got Read On You, How, How They Made Shaun of the Dead. That's not the subtitle. That's, that's <laughs> what it is. Um, with the cooperation of, you know, Edgar Wright, the director and co-writer, and uh, Simon Pegg, the co-writer and star, and uh, spoke to about um, 70 people and, and all. I was really going to half-ass it. That was my plan, was to, like, you know... I'd done an oral history of Shaun of the Dead for Entertainment Weekly. I was like, well, I've interviewed like five people. I got a couple of quotes from Bill Nye. I'll interview five more people, you know, crank out 150 words and call it a day. <laughs> um, but then, uh, I mean, I, I'm joking, but only only half joking. Uh, and then I started interviewing Edgar, um, who sort of, it just turned into more of a story, to be honest. Um, because... I, like most people, had watched Shaun of the Dead. And I would, if someone had said to me, do you think they had a a good time making that movie? I would have said, yes, I think they did. It looked like they had a jolly good time. And uh, I think Edgar was keen to to, to sort of slightly (laughs) change uh, that view in people's minds. Um, Because, you know, it took them... I mean, they had done the sitcom Spaced, Simon and and Nick Frost and uh, Jessica Hines and Edgar Wright, which had in some ways the same flavor of, of Shaun of the Dead and had like a zombie episode. So I, th- and then, you know, I mean, it, it, Shaun of the Dead is in many ways, like it's a, it's a good hang. It's a good time movie. Um, but it took them two years to get the finance uh, for a film, possibly because they pitched it as the Rosencrantz and Gildersleeve, <laughs> uh, um, which is 100% true, but I would argue 100% off-putting to, to, to financiers on multiple levels. <laughs> um, so it took two years to for them to get the finance. And then uh, I don't think Edgar, I don't put any words too much into Edgar's mouth, that he had a pretty hellish time making it uh, for numerous reasons. But I think now if you, you know, I, mean, I think even now Edgar has, because Edgar does change things up a lot, has, you know, he had a problem explaining what Baby Driver was to people. You know, it's a musical that's not a musical and so on and so forth. Um, but what you've got to imagine is Edgar's trying to explain, you know, to first financiers and then his cast and crew, like why he needs 17 different shots of someone pulling a pint of beer from different angles. And, you know what I mean? Like there's all this, I'm exaggerating slightly, but there's all this, 
you know, fantastic style, stylish and stylistic stuff going around his noggin, which really hadn't been done before. Or, you know, he was taking, he was, you know, rearranging the chessboard, I guess, uh, the director chessboard in a way that hadn't been done before. So he's trying to explain this to people. Uh, and they're not getting it or, you know, having to leave early because they've got a, a reservation at an Indian restaurant or, or, <laughs> or which, which, which actually happened or whatever. Um, and so he had to be, you know, I mean, directing, you know, any movie, I imagine, and, you know, is incredibly difficult. But he's, you know, has to be on that like 24 hours a day mm-hmm. for the eight weeks that it took. And, you know, it damn near killed him, basically. Uh, and so he said, I think part of the reason he wanted to cooperate so fully with the book was he read Simon Pegg's memoir, uh, Nerd Do Well, which is a good read. I would recommend Simon. It's, it's very well written. It's very funny. But that is a kind of, to a large extent, a bright and breezy account of Simon's life. And Edgar was saying, yeah, I read Nerd Do Well. And it was like, yeah, we made space. And then we made Short of the Dead. And I met Carrie Fisher and everything was great. <laughs> It was like he wanted to call up Simon, like, do you not remember <laughs> as, as having to go cap in hand to, like, so many production companies over and over and over again? I mean, Edgar tells a story about going to one production company, and uh, Simon at that point, he, he, I mean, they'd done Spaced and, uh, 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 and other things. I mean, Simon was a rising comedy star, but in sort of some quarters in Britain, he'd, he'd been on some margarine commercial, and that was kind of like... You know how he was best known to you know to some people, and I think maybe I'm not getting the story slightly wrong. But he he um you know Edgar and Simon went to some the security desk of some fancy pants film production company, and the guy was like, uh, "Oh, you're that bloke from the margarine commercial, like the Buttercup margarine commercial." And Simon was like, "Yes," and he was like, "Well, you know, how can I help you?" He's like, and Edgar and Simon were like, "Well, we're here to meet you know Big Dick, you know, <laughs> CEO, CEO of." Megaplex pictures or whatever. And Edgar said the security guard looked at Simon and went, they'll let anybody make a movie these days, won't they? <laughs> so, so, you know, I think Edgar, you know, Edgar, so Edgar read some of Simon's account was like, I would like to somewhat correct the record right. uh, on this. Um, so, uh, so that's how, so that's how the book came about. But I'm laughing because you talk about a book tour. I mean, I'm sitting now, I've been, uh, I'm back in the, U- I'm usually based in New York, but I'll be back in the UK for a bit. I'm looking after my mother. And my book tour has essentially been uh, my mother's spare room based, essentially. <laughs> I mean, I did have, you know, when I started this book and was sure that COVID would only last six weeks, right. you know, I had this fantastic idea that I would be, there would be signings, signings all over the place in London and, and, and New York and LA and you know maybe Tokyo. Who, knew? <laughs> Who knows how far the reach of this book uh, could be, uh, and the glamorous places that I would go. Forbidden planets <laughs> all over the planet. Um, but actually, the book has been uh, a huge success, largely due to the support of, of um, Edgar and Simon and Nick and others on social media. Uh, but I have been enjoying it largely from a from a small Welsh village. <laughs> <laughs> the response has been really incredible online, just seeing how many people have been sharing it and talking about it and enjoying yeah. it. So congratulations. That's awesome. My advice to people who want to write a book about a film is write a book about a film that people like. That's, 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 that's it's number one. And I, really stumbled, I really stumbled into this, and now I'm a bit daunted because I, I mean, I'd like to write another book and maybe perhaps about a film, but I just stumbled into writing about a book that was, you know, recent enough that no one had written a book about it, mm-hmm. but also old enough that you could sort of, you know, call it a classic, which I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, uh, people have to like it a lot and like it in a way that that they, you know, will buy the vinyl soundtrack when it comes out right. on Mondo or you know, they want. Oh, and it should be horror as well, because horror is sort of the genre where people will buy physical uh, artifacts. And make sure that the people you're writing about not only offer their full cooperation, but also have, like, millions of internet followers. (laughs) So maybe I shouldn't do a Mike Lee film next time. Although Life is Sweet sweet with Zombies. Life is Sweet is a Mike Lee movie, for those who don't know. Life is Sweet with Zombies was another pitch 
uh, that they made trying to sell short of the dead and probably put them back another three months in, in retrospect. <laughs> I can't believe people wouldn't just jump all over that. I know. I know. Uh, well, funnily enough, so I mentioned Rosie. I should I should point out I am not someone that sits around uh, 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 reading Tom Stopper, but um, uh, the the good thing is I, I, so you know if you're familiar with Edgar's work, you know that if he mentioned you know if, if somebody's mentioned if something if a joke is told or somebody's mentioned or referenced or seen or whatever in a scene, those people will like, or thing will likely be coming back. And I think it's true that, that, that in writing the book, I started modeling the book on Shaun of the Dead and Edgar's films. And what was nice was that the last minute, um, I just let, let Edgar read the book. Um, I had been advised to do so by someone who, who, uh, had written, I don't want to say who, but had written a, a history of another film. And they were like, well, the directors are just the best fact checkers, you know, like right. not even, right. not, and it, not, it's more like uh, they just know about years and who actually, you know, if you, if you made, if you made a literal factual error, which I hadn't made too many of, but he definitely said like, yeah, so-and-so did not write that film. They wrote this film, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I get these two films confused. So it wasn't that Edgar asked anything to be changed, other than the things that were factually <laughs> correct, which even a glance at a, at a, at a, at a you know, a, a film book would uh, would have. Uh, but what he did do, which was brilliant, was he's like, well, you, you're making like a, you know, you mentioned this Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing. Funnily enough, last year I was at a BAFTA dinner. And I was sat, they put me next to Tom Stoppard. And, uh, you know, Tom Stoppard had no idea who Edgar Wright was. Um, <laughs> and Edgar sort of introduced himself. And uh, uh, I think he's, you know, he said I'd made Shaun of the Dead. And I think Stoppard had seen that. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. That's good. And then Edgar was like, funny story about Shaun of the Dead. And then told him how they had tried to get finance uh, for, uh, for uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, by calling it the Rosencrantz and Gilderstern of uh, of zombie movies. The idea, of course, is the Dawn of the Dead. George Rivera's Dawn of the Dead was Hamlet. Uh, to be clear, that's right, the right. George, that's Hamlet. Those are the people uh, from a British point of view. I mean, Dawn of the Dead. They're not. I mean, the idea was that in, you know in American zombie movies, it's always soldiers and SWAT teams and <laughs> scientists and you know. I mean, that's not always true with Romero, but there is an element of that, especially yeah. in the Day of the Dead. Um, but what if it was in Britain? We haven't got any guns. We don't, you know, we're not, it was just like, what if, you know, Edgar and Simon and Nick essentially were faced with a zombie invasion? What would they do? They would, uh, they would go down the pub. <laughs> do you get tired? Do you get tired of talking about it ever? Oddly, no, but I've yeah. just got to learn. I've always, I always think this time to keep the answers short. People don't need your whole life story, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing I know, I haven't, you know, take a breath in 20 minutes <laughs> it's a had, fun thing to talk about. yeah Sorry. have you had a chance to see um last night in Shaun Soho? Of the Shaun of the dead i've <laughs> assumed you had seen having uh yes i have i have I, I i i had sort of i mean at entertainment weekly we get assigned we get assigned movies for one reason or another um uh, i wasn't assigned last night in soho i was assigned the sparks editing sparks documentary which i thought was amazing mm-hmm. and it's sort of I'm not necessarily somebody to uh, to get that worried about Oscars, but the fact that that's not in sort of Oscar contention for, for best documentary does kind of uh, knock me a bit. Um, although there are lots of great music documentaries out this year, um, yeah, I saw Last Night in Soho and absolutely, you know, loved it. I, I mean, it's possible my critical faculties <laughs> gone, but I loved it. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much because it is quite twisty. Sure. Um, but uh, I, lo- I mean, the 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 actresses are amazing. But as a as a sort of Doctor Who fan, it's always fun to see Matt Smith kind of turn up and stuff. Right. And it was such a. Uh, I don't know. The doctor in Doctor Who is not a goody two shoes, but he, there was definitely a sort of Boy Scout aspect to Matt Smith as the doctor. And um, uh, to see him in, in, I think, what is immediate, almost immediately seen as a villainous role was, mm-hmm. was kind of great. And, and Terrence Stamp is amazing. Diana Rigg is amazing. Uh, Thomas and McKenzie, obviously. Anya Taylor Joy, obviously. Um, yeah, I just really liked it. I don't know. I understand people having problems with it, I guess, as I do 
it's just I think this 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 year particularly there's been so much great horror stuff and I do think and I can kind of understand this but I but there's also been a lot it seems to be a lot of pushback from the horror community about like malignant and Halloween kills and, mm-hmm. and last night in Soho I mean I'm generalizing and it's weird I think I, I do follow the right people on Twitter because I never see the original tweet which enrages everybody <laughs> I only see people being like, what are you talking about you know uh, that's stupid but I don't know I mean it's ne- you're never going to look back on um you know, you look back, like, well, Ghostbusters and Gremlins was released on the same day. That was right. a pretty good day. Right. And I'm not saying it's like that, but I do think, you know, in one season, if you're getting uh, uh, Halloween Kills and um, uh, Malignant, I just thought, I thought the second half, I'll I tell you what was great about Malignant to me was the first hour, I'm like, oh, this is all right. I'm getting right. my money's worth. Yeah. You know, I'm getting, after an hour, I had my money's worth and if someone had asked me what was going to happen after an hour, I would have confidently suggested like the two or three things, broadly speaking, that were going to happen. And I kind of almost lost interest in that film. And then like James Wan just strapped <laughs> a top bomb to the thing and blew it up. And I just loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was great. And to see, I mean, Halloween girls, I saw on my computer, unfortunately. And I think that's, that's, that is a movie that you have to go and see in, um, in uh, in the cinema, you know. Um, but it's funny enough. I was thinking about you because I interviewed who's the who's the lady from um, the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills that's in uh, Halloween. Uh, Kyle Richards. Kyle Richards. Because I was thinking about you because um, Eaten Alive is a Toby Hooper movie. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because I was talking. To, I, I, what I here's what I love doing. I don't. I've never watched the second of any Real Housewives uh, thing. Um, so I just know Carl Richards as the kid right. from, you know, the original Halloween. And now, actually, I thought putting a pretty respectable performance in in Halloween Kills. Um, but then Kim Richards is the kid in uh, is the kid who gets shot, right? In yeah. um, the Solid uh, Precinct 30. Yeah. And one of them is in Eaten Alive. And perhaps you can perhaps you can remind me which one it was. Uh, it's either Kim or Carl Richards is in Eaten Alive. I think it's Kim, actually. Oh, Kyle. And now I can't even tell which is which anyway. But I was talking to Kyle and she was talking about Eaten Alive, about how either she or her sister were being asked by the director to crawl under a, a, a house at Universal Studios where they were supposed to act with a lot of rats, right? So it would be them and a bunch of rats. Is this, does this sound like something in Eaten Alive? Am I, is her memory confused? Um... Not, not that I remember, but it's got to be in there. I just maybe haven't seen was, the movie in a couple of years. Well, anyway, so you've got this kid. I mean, so she would have been like 10 at the time, uh, being asked to, to crawl under a house at, at Universal Studios. Like a <laughs> mocked up house, but a house nonetheless, where she would be met with a lot of rats. And the kid was like, uh, either Carl or Kim was like, oh, I don't fancy this much. And their mother was talking to the director and said, I'm not having my kid, you know, going under a house with a bunch of rats. And they said, the director said, I'm not, either, it was either Toby or somebody else. It's probably like one of the, you know, one of the other guys said, don't worry, the rats are trained. And uh, the response from, 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 from Kyle, or Kyle and Kim's mother was, you can't train rats. <laughs> so what they, and apparently the mother then pointed at like the script girl or whatever. I don't mean girl in a derogatory term, but the script supervisor or somebody and said, she's short, get a dress that looks like the one that Kim is wearing, and send her under the house to deal with the rat. Which is apparently what I have a horrible suspicion I'm going to send you an email tomorrow being like, it wasn't Kim or Kyle Richards. It was Kyle Richards. I did look it up oh, while we were talking. Oh. It was Kyle Richards, yeah. Well, that's good. There's some uh, there's some truth to that story. <laughs> she, was, but she was great, and she was you know talking about all these horror films that she'd been in. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just such a reversal because... You know, usually people aren't falling over to talk about their early horror career. But right. I think in this case, she was so glad someone wasn't like asking a lot of questions about the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. That she sure. was, she was, and she uh, was just so delighted to be in Halloween Kills because she's sort of not acted in a while, I guess, and 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 it really kind of, you know, she was she was very much like, eh, you know, Real Housewives this and my uh, and my designer line of clothing that but i got to you know i got to be in halloween kills which is great 
I thought she was one of the highlights of that movie too. I really enjoyed her in that movie. I can understand. I can understand. I'm not going to argue with people being a bit meh, you know. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I mean, people love all those old, not very good sequels right. from the 80s. Like, this is one of those. I'm not saying it's not very good. <laughs> right. It's like, this is, the, the, this is the, that movie we're getting to see again. But with, you know, a bigger budget and, and uh, you know, get to see it at the cinema and if you can. And um, I thought it was fun. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Once people have lived with it for about a decade or so, I think even the even the people who weren't crazy about it, and I would include myself among those, uh, will probably come around and be like, "Ah, oh, no, it's fun." Well, there's always there's 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 a lot to be said for knowing something's not going to be that great as well. You know what I mean? And I'm not I'm not talking about Halloween Kills specifically, but that idea of Oh, I, I, you know, I've seen it before and, and it wasn't that great. Or even, I mean, I was thinking I went to see The French Dispatch uh, under perfect circumstances, which is, you know, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of the director. But beforehand, I'd read like 100 reviews saying this is not like his best movie. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was like low expectations. And then I liked two thirds of it. And I was like, great. You know, it's fantastic. I enjoyed it a lot. But if I, you know, if I'd seen it without any sort of context, then uh, sorry, I'm sitting here stating the obvious. Which... <laughs> no, that's okay. I just saw it the other night and, uh, liking two thirds of it is exactly how I would describe it. Do you, what I couldn't understand. And, and but this is an incredibly geeky question, I guess, but, does the magazine in the film only write stories about the town in which it's based? It seems to. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? Right, no. I mean, isn't it supposed to be, like... I mean, is that just something we're supposed to... Because it's also the last issue, right? It's all... Right. It's not all the stuff that's in the last issue, which one of which, it seems to be, is an introduction to the town where they've been publishing and presumably <laughs> writing non-stop stories about the town for the last like 40 years and here's Owen Wilson on a bicycle going like, uh, you know, drunk <laughs> prostitutes or whatever. It's like, well, we know this, right? I couldn't, maybe I, I just wasn't sure if I missed anything or whether that was something we were just supposed to accept. Like, you know, that's kind of how friend, I took it. Yeah. That we were just supposed like, to accept as kind of Wes Anderson quirk. Okay. Well, fair enough. I don't know. That's good. Um, let's, um, let's, uh, let's talk about the movie that we're here to talk about, which is the long good Friday from 1980 directed by John McKenzie. And this was uh, a, a film that you had suggested. So I'll start off by asking what, uh, what it is about the long good Friday that made you want to cover it on the show. Well, I, I knew that you had covered Shaun of the dead before and uh, I haven't got sick of talking about it, but I guess it would make a change. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, well, I mean, Shaun of the dead, it's interesting. Shaun of the dead is, like a quintessentially British movie, apart from the fact that, you know, it's a, it, it's directly inspired by a lot of American movies. So it's that odd thing that it's, it's a, you know, a British version of an American movie. Um, and I was thinking about what else is like that. What's sort of really, really British, but also um, owes a huge amount to America. And I sort of immediately thought of the long good Friday, which for those who haven't seen it, is uh it's a gangster movie mm-hmm. uh set over a you know a day or so in, in london um bob hoskins in pretty much his first film performance although he'd acted quite a lot on stage and tv before then in like an absolutely titanic performance plays this guy uh harry shand who is i mean there's nothing particularly original about the the plot especially 40 years on but he plays this, you know, London gangster who, in the course of the movie, you discover has sort of conquered all the other gangs. So his gang is like, he's the king of the king gang. And as you, as he enters the film, he's just returned from America where he set up some deal with the mafia. And the idea is that, I mean, the mafia in America have gone legit. Hoskins, Harry Shand, wants to go legit. And he wants to get involved, finance, oversee uh, the reclamation of Docklands, which was this area of London which had totally uh, fallen into disrepair in the post-war decades and was sort of ripe for renovation in 1980. And his plan is that he'll oversee the construction of these buildings and so his whole gangster empire will become a legitimate empire. Um, And the... 
two representatives of the mafia come over to be sort of wined and dined by Hoskins's uh, character and his kind of very posh gangsters mole played by uh, a wonderful Helen Mirren. Um, they're very much, a, you know, a partnership, a team. And so the idea is the Americans will come over and see how great London is and, and invest a load of money. But in fact, what happens is that they come over and there is like just immediate bloodshed <laughs> as unknown forces blow up both metaphorically and physically uh, um, uh, Harry Shan's gangland empire, uh, blowing up his pub, murdering his associates, uh, and so on and so on, uh, trying to murder his mother, obviously the worst crime uh, uh, anyone can commit against a gangster. Although, fair enough, the worst crime anyone can commit against me or anyone else as well, I guess. <laughs> Um, but obviously gangsters famously love their, their mothers. And so a lot of it to a degree is almost like a detective movie where Hoskins' gangster is trying to piece together who wants to take down his empire. Uh, and I don't know whether I need to reveal what it is. I mean, the plot machine, I don't know about you, but I found the, I found the actual intricacies of the plot a bit. Uh, I've always found it a bit hard to follow. But essentially, he's a man losing control, and he starts the movie. I mean, he's always, he's Bob Hoskins. He's Bob Hoskins. <laughs> he's a London gangster. So, you know, he's like a sort of proto-Guy Ritchie character, essentially. And indeed, Guy Ritchie's whole, you know, career, arguably, not whole, not Aladdin, but uh, most of his <laughs> career owes a huge debt to the Long Good Friday. So you've got Hoskins. He's a gangster, isn't he? Uh, but at the start of the movie, you know, he's wearing suits and whatnot. And he's got, like, Ellen Mirren as his girlfriend. And he's all, like, moving into moving into high society and all that. And as the movie progresses, he sort of reverts, really. I mean, not he doesn't have to revert that far, to be fair. <laughs> the, the, the onion is peeled so that by the end, he's, like, you know, stabbing people in the necks with broken bottles and wandering around with, like, just gore all over his shirt. Um and it's just a film that, I mean, I can't tell you when I first saw it, but it's, I mean, I'm uh, 53, so, you know, it came out in 1980. I would have seen it probably a couple of years later, I'm guessing, on VHS somehow, because um, that VHS was just coming in. I seem to remember The Long Good Friday being sort of one of the big titles in Britain. But to me, it was just like this sort of intoxicating mix of, you could just tell from the, the like the stills that it was just going to be incredibly violent. Apart from yeah. anything else, that had Bob Hoskins and and actually, I mean, you wouldn't know who half these people were. But I was watching. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't seen it in a while. But the other day, like they're all populated by like TV. I mean, I recognized everybody in that film one wow. way or another, either because. They did turn up in, a, I mean, is it Bricktop who's in, is a character in one of the Guy Ritchie movies? Is in Snatch, he's in it. And uh, Kevin McNally, uh, later of Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know if you spotted him as like a young uh, gay man in a bar at the at the start of the movie. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, to me, it is this sort of like Proustian, good grief. Look at these, look at these British character actors. It's amazing. Um but uh, I just, I just, you, you know, as a kid, I just had that real whiff of uh, danger about it in my imagination. But I have to say, I watched it and I watched it again. I'm, I'm just fascinated by what you thought of it because, um, I mean, there's two things that I almost called you up and was like, let's choose something else. And here's why. <laughs> One of which is, I mean, not that it's not an interesting film to talk about, but but it's it is not the hard recommend i think it is a recommend but it's not the hard recommend i thought it might be one of which is like there's a lot of very un-pc stuff going on in the in in the slang that is directed to uh people of color to uh, uh the, the gay community um i'm only laughing because i'm pretty sure the, the phrase the gay community does not uh, does not turn up uh in this film um, and it's just like, but, but I mean, that, that happens in The Sopranos as well, which we all uh, sat and rewatched over the past year. Um, but it's also, so there's that a little bit, but it's also that I'd forgotten that in my imagination, when this came turned up, it seemed very new to me. Um, 
the violence, the even like Hoskins, who I hadn't seen before, um, the idea of like a globalized underworld, you know, which, mm-hmm. which in many ways seems quite prescient. Uh, although I wasn't to know it at the time, the the this whole plan to turn Docklands. So the plan is to turn Docklands into, uh, you know, fancy residents, to gentrify Docklands, basically. And then they're going to hold the the uh, the Olympics there. This is their plan in, like, 1988. That all happened. Like, like the plot of this gangster movie. Like, Harry Shand doesn't get to do that. But other possibly equally dubious people <laughs> would, in real life, do that. And and Harry Shand's idea is just, like, a couple of blocks. They, they renovated the shit out of... Like you know, this massive expanse of rundown London, and then eventually the, the Olympics was held uh, in London. In I, I can't remember when now, but uh, I mean not 1988, but 10 or 15 years later. So to me, in 1980, whenever I saw it in 1982 or whatever, it seemed like this incredibly new thing, you know. Um, but rewatching it, it seems incredibly old, <laughs> and it's like it's like. It's definitely, I mean, it is an old movie. I'm not, I mean, like, you know, mad. But it's definitely like a pre-diehard, pre-mid-80s action movie movie. I mean, it opens, essentially. I mean, it's not quite the opening shot. But I don't know if you remember, but it opens with some guy walking down a flight of stairs. Like, the mm-hmm. longest, or the longest ladder, or whatever, flight <laughs> of stairs. I mean, the phrase shoe leather is used a lot to, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, setting up of the dominoes at the start of the film that the people have to do. But this is literal shoe leather. Like, you see people walking. From, someone's like, oh, i got to go over there. You see them walk over there. <laughs> There's like a two-minute sequence where Bob Hoskins just fixes himself a drink. Now, admittedly, he then uses, he's like, oh, I want a drunk, I'll have a drink. And he's like, you know, dicking around with the... But there's no, like, Sorkian... Like, the idea of Aaron Sorkin... Like, there's no, I'm making a drink, but I will also talk to someone right. about something, right. or or um, or do so. It's just there's no. It's just there's so much stuff, and not in what is not that long a movie. That's just sort of driving around, people walking about, climbing stairs, this and that. Like there's only one thing that's happening at a time. Whereas now, and and you know, we get bored of this. But every every time, you know, at any given. Uh, you know, big budget movie, every scene does like 17 things. 17 things we're probably not interested in, but right. um, 17 things nonetheless. And so I was like, oh, I'm watching the first 15 minutes. I'm like, this is really slow and I don't quite understand what's going on anyway. And I've seen this film like five times. But then Hoskins turns up and I just, I like, he is just, he's just amazing. He is just absolutely like, fearsome and like James Gandolfini I mean it's not it's not the same performance of James Gandolfini but it is that like you know guy trying to improve himself I guess and but but never too far away from from being you know uh able and possibly happy to murder the shit out of people <laughs> um so I don't know what did, what did you think I had seen it once before. I got it on Blu-ray maybe 10 years ago and watched it. And like you said, I actually had kind of a hard time following some of it and keeping track of who all the characters were and what they were doing and what people were upset about. And then something would explode and I would say, oh, okay, I'm I'm back in this. And then we get into sort of these long conversations again. Um, That was my memory of it. And then I watched it again today and was pretty knocked out by it. Um, Yeah. I, I, in particular, the Bob Hoskins performance. I mean, if nothing else, the movie is worth seeing just for that Bob Hoskins performance, because he really is on another planet, like good. Um, And, you know, my introduction to him was who framed Roger Rabbit. I I had no knowledge. And as a kid seeing who framed Roger Rabbit, I just was kind of like, who is this guy? He doesn't look like a movie star. Why is he the main character in this movie that I'm watching? This doesn't make sense to me. I was used to seeing familiar actors, particularly in movies of that stature. You know, I knew that it was a Robert Zemeckis movie and Steven Spielberg was producing it. And every cartoon character I'd ever loved was in the movie. And so I expected, you know, Bill Murray at the center of it. And instead I got Bob Hoskins and I, who is this guy? And I watch it now and I can appreciate how great, 
his performances, not just on a character level, but on a technical level, what he's doing in that movie is so difficult in terms of even just maintaining eye lines and, you know, uh, where he's moving and how the physicality of his performance is so incredible. Um, so that was my introduction to him. I think had it, had my introduction to him been the Long Good Friday, I don't even know how I would have reacted to him and who framed Roger Rabbit. You know, because well, I mean, I'm older than you, but but my see, I've always been. I was always. I mean, Bob Hoskins, R.I.P. Sadly, but I was always yeah. because because Long Good Friday was my first experience. I was always waiting for him to get back to that. You know, right. like I mean, I don't want him murdering people in Who Framed Roger Rabbit necessarily, <laughs> but. I was always like, well, this isn't quite my Bob, Bob Hoskins is great. I mean, he would play, you know, underworld characters uh, and not nice people, certainly in his career. But I was always slightly waiting uh, for him to go back to um, uh, to Hoskins. I will say what I realized was that was that um, uh, I guess I'm someone that just finds it hard not to root for the protagonist. I mean, I know this is this we've gone over and over this with Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and so on and so forth, yeah. with the creators screaming that we should not be rooting for these people. But it is just very hard. And certainly as a kid, uh, I mean, I don't know what I thought, but I was just like, wow, Harry Shand, like, this is a man who knows what he wants. <laughs> you know, this, is a, this is a man who gets things done. Even though, even though his main... Uh, accomplice appears to be a man called Razors. Razors, <laughs> this guy Razors, who is, I mean, the guy that plays him, I can't remember his name, but is a big uh, British character actor, who I'm sure must have turned up at Game of Thrones at some point. <laughs> but um, he is called Razors, not only because uh, that's his way of, of getting information from people with a huge knife, but because his body is covered in, like, knife scars. It's like a two-foot you got going on there. Um, but as an impressionable kid, I definitely, um, uh, well, I mean, cause he, you know, it's that, it's that Tony Soprano thing again. And I do wonder whether how familiar David Chase was with this, with this film. Maybe not at all. Who knows? Um, but it is, I think that Harry Shand wants to stop murdering people. Right, you know? I mean, he wants to right. stop murdering people and put on the Olympics. And you're like, well, let's root for that. You know? <laughs> Even though, you know, inevitably there's a murdering to be had. But I definitely, I mean, for, I mean, spoilers for the end of The Long Good Friday. We can spoil the end of The Long Good Friday, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it, as you know, having seen it today, it, it turns out the IRA, which is another, the IRA are responsible for all of this, Irish terrorists. I'm not sure they're named as the IRA, but it's Irish terrorists, which was also a really daring thing, I remember, or seemed to me to be really daring, because the Irish, I mean, the IRA were, were blowing up parts of London at the time. And, and I suppose they would have, like, Christmas campaigns in London uh, uh, setting off bombs and, and such. So so to use them as, like, a uh, a plot device in the Long Good Friday, to me, seemed quite remarkable, really. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Uh, the Long Good Friday. But so it ends with a discovery of the IRA and then... <laughs> And then you think Bob Hoskins has murdered the IRA, essentially, at some sort of racetrack. And then, oh, we haven't mentioned the fact that Pierce Brosnan, like, I think a seven-year-old Pierce Brosnan <laughs> is in this movie. He's like, no, he's like, I don't know how old he is, like, in his 20s, for sure. And yeah. hot as shit, this guy. And absolutely, <laughs> like, wow, this guy is amazing. Um, just such a looker. But it ends with, uh, it turns out uh, Hoskins has not murdered all the IRA. And Helen Mirren's character is uh, whisked off in a car by the terrorists, by the you know IRA. And Hoskins is in another car, and uh, you know God knows what's happened to his chauffeur. But the IRA are in the front seat, and they got a driver. And then you got Pierce Brosnan uh, turning around with a devilish smirk, pointing like a silenced gun at Harry Shand. And then, like a sort of like a sort of Guy Ritchie version of the end of The Graduate. The final shot of the movie is this endless shot of Hoskins, which I don't mind because it's Hos it's Bob Hoskins, and he's and you can tell he's thinking about it. He's like, uh, and, he, I, and in my mind as a kid, I always thought because I think you could see a little smirk at the end, and I always thought that he'd figured out a way to get out of this seemingly impossible situation. Which you know, the idea. I mean, I guess the IRA plan is to you know kill, take him to a field and kill him and bury him in a you know, in a ditch. Um, 
And for years I thought that. And then I, I actually interviewed uh, the director of the film at some point. And I can remember saying, like, I got a theory that Bob Hoskins gets away at the end of The Long Good Friday. And he was like, that's insane. They take him to a field. <laughs> they take him to a field and shoot him uh, and bury him. Although, uh, sort of in doing some research for this, I discovered that the screenwriter did have an idea for a sequel where uh, the cops would stop. The, the idea was the cops would stop the car. And under those circumstances, Harry Shan could just like walk away, I guess. Um, but it never, it never came to pass, which is probably, a, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, I read that there was talk of a sequel wherein he somehow, as you theorized as a kid, gets away from the IRA and lives to murder another day. I don't know. And I also saw supposedly, I think this was on like the IMDb trivia. So obviously, take it with a grain of salt. But um, if you pause the shot of Helen Mirren in the car as the two cars pass at the end, you can see his chauffeur murdered in the front seat. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I didn't hold out much hope for him. Anyway. No, no, probably <laughs> not. <laughs> but Mirren in this movie is just, I mean, I just think cause it's, it's barely a role at all. To right. be honest with you. you know I mean? She's not, I mean, on the paper, but I just think she's like, I don't know what you thought, but I thought she was pretty luminescent and, and you just forget like how, I mean, I've met Helen Mirren. She is, I mean, I, I should, you know, don't want to talk out of turn. That's a good looking woman you got there. Sure. Um, but in but like 1980, Helen Mirren is just, is just off the scale. And there's just this perfect, because it's never explained why, you know, East End murdering wide boy Harry Shand has, has managed to, to land this, you know, uh, private school, you know, co- uh, and I'm guessing, you know, uh, schooled in Gestad or whatever, uh, uh, aristocratic uh, Helen Mirren, but but they are they are they are quite dynamite pairing, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I love the sorry, choice. No, I, I just was going to say that I love the choice to make her sort of this upper class, uh, refined woman. Because if you've seen a lot of gangster movies or a lot of film noir, you know the the gangster's girlfriend is always sort of this put upon often abused from the wrong side of the tracks. Like this is the best she can do is this gangster. And so that's why she's with him. Cause it's, it's the best she can do. And the Helen Mirren character obviously could have anybody she wants. And so that it's this unspoken thing that she's chosen to be with the Bob Hoskins character is so fascinating. And I kind of love that they don't necessarily go into it because we could sit here and pick it apart and theorize as to why, I mean, it obviously speaks to his command and his charisma um but yeah i i love that they don't really explain why she's so drawn to him but that the choice to make her such a different uh character than the usual archetype i thought was really great well then again patrick never underestimate the sex appeal of balding overweight (laughs) middle-aged british guys i never have i never have (laughs) underestimated it and you have, because um, you have, uh, like, uh, second in command is, you know, he, he turns out in some ways to be the villain of the piece. But you have that extraordinary scene where out of nowhere, he and Helen Mirren, the second in command and Helen Mirren are in the, the elevator. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second in command goes over to her and says, I could lick every inch of you. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> Like, what is going on? And this reminded me of The Sopranos as well, because she doesn't, like, she doesn't really react. I mean, she does, I mean, you know, it's Helen Mirren, so she's reacting all over the place, but very minutely. Um, And I think, the you know, they reach the floor and she's, like, saved by the bell. And you're left, but you kind of assume that Hoskins is going to find out about this. You know, this is like, and this is why it reminds me of The Sopranos as well, because The Sopranos builds tension but then releases that tension in a completely unexpected way. And so, uh, but also maybe in, in not such an unconnected way. So, uh, you know, there is this uh, scene between the second in command and uh, Helen Mirren. Uh, and then you're like, oh, Bob Hoskins is going to end up murdering that guy, which he does, but for completely different reasons than, right. uh, than wanting to lick uh, Helen Mirren. And there's <laughs> I, the other, I forgot the other reason this was on my mind was that, uh, uh, and I'm sorry if I, I mean, you may have read this in the book, but 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 they tried to get Helen Mirren to play Sean's mom in Shaun of the Dead. There was a, uh, uh, because the cast they, I mean, they wrote Shaun of the Dead 
um, with very specific people in mind. Um, uh, so uh, I'm trying to remember the. Uh, uh, so David, Sean's best friend, not Sean's best friend. David, sort of one of the other guys, it was supposed to be David Walliams, who would who would become very famous with the show Little Britain. Um, but they wound up. Uh, but he was actually making Little Britain at the time. But they named the reason that character is called David is because they wanted David Walliams to do it. And then they had to audition a whole load of other people, including. Uh, the guy that now plays the villain in the Mission Impossible movies. Who, who's the who's the sort of head architect? Sean. Uh, I know exactly who you're talking the about. I can't remember his name. Yeah, he's got that guy. voice. Yeah. Yeah. Edgar told me his his tape, his audition tape was utterly terrifying. For, <laughs> just incredibly intense. Um, but so they wanted. So, but basically, they, they, what they wanted to do was to to not just cast their friends, but a lot of you know. I mean, Simon Pegg was not that well known. He's playing Sean. Nick Frost, the male, the second male lead, had been in space, but had also been in a Mexican restaurant serving people like two years before making Sean of the Dead. Nobody had heard of him. Um, he didn't. I don't think he. He didn't even have like a screen actor, like an equity card, a Screen Actors Guild card. There was somebody else called Nick Frost uh, that did have a Screen Actors Guild. Card. They had an equity card, so they were able to say that sort of fudge that. And so they kind of just wanted to um, uh, cast their friends or, like, people they knew that weren't that famous. So uh, Penelope Wilton plays Sean's mum in the finished film, and they wrote that with her in mind. Uh, but then uh, Working Title stepped in to produce the film and were like, you know what would be great? Famous people. Why don't you put <laughs> some famous people in this film? And I interviewed... Um, one of the, the the chairman of working title and it's an obvious point but he's like look if you can put someone in your film who can then go on a chat show and sit in a couch and people aren't like who the fuck is this guy <laughs> then that helps you sell your movie so um they uh they uh wanted kate winslet to play sean's girlfriend kate winslet didn't want to do it uh or was doing something else i think she was doing um that jim carrey movie the the eternal sunshine know, the... of the spotless yes. yeah sorry it turns out writing a book uh, for sitting in a room writing Shaun of the Dead book for 18 months does not improve your memory even about Shaun of the Dead related uh, facts uh, so she didn't want to do it um, and and there were sort of various other approaches to different people but they were like well how about Helen Mirren for Shaun's mum and they were like Edgar and Simon said well we've written it for Penelope Wilton we're going to send it to her but Penelope Wilton said no <laughs> did not want to be don't want to appear in a low-budget zombie film set in a pub. Um, she, I mean, she was she wasn't like a quote-unquote star, but she was very well known from, from and beloved from from British TV. Just didn't fancy it. Just didn't fancy it. So then they went to Helen Mirren, and um, Helen Mirren said that she didn't want to play Sean's mom, but she did want to play uh, Ed, uh, the role that Nick Frost would eventually play uh, Sean's. Um, somewhat useless drug dealing, uh, you know, roommate. Except he's not really a roommate; he just sleeps on the couch. And they said, "Well, why would you want to play that role?" And she said, "Because that's the funny role." And, and they're like, "Yeah, she was right. That is that is the funny role." Uh, but I guess they weren't. They just thought that would, you know, I mean, having Helen Mirren play play <laughs> play play a role written for Nick Frost wouldn't really work. So uh, so Nick Frost ended up playing that and. Uh, uh, they then they took out um, they took out uh, uh, then they got they got um, uh, you know, so they got what they wanted in the end but they they did make an honest effort but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because uh, when I mentioned to Nick Frost that Helen Mirren almost played his role he said um, that that would have been great like how amazing that would have been I mean Nick Frost does seem like an absolute treasure he said that would that would that would be amazing that would be great. And just think about the bit when Peter Serafanovich, Serafanovich bites Ed. If it had been Helen Mirren as Ed, would have had the same erotic appeal as when that guy in the Long Good Friday says he wants to lick <laughs> Helen Mirren all over. And uh, I had that quote, and I was like, because it's such a good quote, but it needs so much explanation. Right, it right, needs- right. It's in fact 450 pages of explanation, <laughs> so you can put it like a third of the way through, and it makes sense. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote uh, 
Uh, I wrote the book. <laughs> um, that's an amazing story. I love that. I love that Helen Mirren didn't want to play uh, Sean's mom, but she would agree to yeah. play Jason Statham's mom in the Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise. My guess would be that she got a better quote. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you think? It was accepted by, uh, by, by that point, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had uh, this weird thing in my head as I was watching The Long Good Friday because there's so much of the movie that is very specifically British, um, even down to the stuff with the IRA. I mean, that's not necessarily something that – uh, Americans can understand what that was like living through that time. Um, but I had just the other day watched this documentary that just showed up on HBO called Four Hours at the Capitol. And it's about the, right. the Capitol riots on January 6th. And so I've had that on my mind and I'm watching The Long Good Friday. And it's just this interesting, I, I had this parallel in my mind to Bob Hoskins being sort of the the modern sort of uh, American Republican party trying to consolidate power, um, going about it through maybe underhanded ways, but trying to seem legitimate on the surface. And then Donald Trump being right. the IRA, just blowing things up at every opportunity and ultimately winning at the end. And I was like, I don't know if this parallel works like on a one-to-one, but this was what was on my mind as I watched it because there is something about, you know, this this gangster trying to go legit that reminded me of some American politics and American politicians. Um, and this, so Hoskins is, is Harry Shad is Mitch McConnell? Yeah, movie? I guess so. I guess okay. that would be right. Yeah. And uh, Pierce Brosnan is Trump, which I'm sure he'd be happy yeah. to hear. Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> I just, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And then, well, it's interesting talking about America because there is that, and I'm going to sound a bit jingoistic now, but, but at the end of the film, you know, about sort of 15 minutes before the end, uh, after Hoskins has murdered the IRA, or so he thinks, goes, has that meeting with, with the mafia at the hotel. And, uh, you know, to me, like, yeah, everything's all right. Don't right. worry about it. Don't ignore, ignore the exploding building. Nothing to see here. <laughs> um, and the mafia tell him that they're going home because they've had enough of exploding buildings and, you know, this and that. People being taken out of swimming pools and ice cream vans or whatever happens. Um, actually, that's not going to make any sense if you haven't seen the film. But, uh, and then Hoskins goes into that whole speech about, like, you know, the mafia, mafia of Shittim or whatever. And he's, he's just like how he wants, he wants, and this is like this East End gangster talking. He's like, he's like, I just, we're going in, we're going into, we're going to uh, make a deal with the Germans. You know, they, they understand culture. They, they, they brought a bit more to the world than a fucking hot dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like British tirade against America, um, which I mean, you know, I mean, God, I love America. I work in America. Um, I live in America. But uh, th there's definitely, and, and I mean, you know, Britain is obsessed with American culture. But I mean, certainly in 1980, there was definitely that hangover of, uh, you know, there was that saying about British, American soldiers in Britain, which is like, you know, overpaid, oversexed and over here. Um, <laughs> there's definitely that sort of like sibling uh, you know, not always great relationship between between Britain and America. But then I was sad because you know, Hoskins is like, yeah, the common market, we're going to be in the EU and I'm going to make a deal with the Germans. And now in like a post-Brexit world, we're having to go back to America cap in hand right. because the British, pub the British public were promised that we could just, it would just take two minutes to make some fantastic deal with America, even though at the time it was run by a maniac. <laughs> um and that all our problems would be over, and, and uh, it turns out all our problems are not over, having left the uh, the EU. No. Uh, slipped, slipped into a bit of politics there, but you could have led me. You led me to it. Sorry about that. Sorry. I wasn't trying Sorry. to trap you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about uh, uh, Nicolas Cage, the big Nicolas Cage news? Oh, absolutely. That he's playing Dracula. You saw he's this? He's playing Dracula in a movie called Renfield with Nicholas Holt. Fantastic. How do you feel about that? You feel good about that? I'm I'm incredibly excited uh, because I'm I'm a excited that there's a new Dracula movie. B that Nicolas Cage is going to be playing Dracula, 
and not Renfield. I think having him play Renfield is uh, the obvious choice because he can be all weird and basically like his performance in Vampire's Kiss. Having him play Dracula, I think, goes against what we typically expect a Nicolas Cage performance to be. But I'm also excited that he's just going to be in a major studio movie again, like that's going to yeah. play in movie theaters, you know? Well, not, you... I mean, hopefully, yeah. If, I... there, if there still are movie theaters by now. But yes. Good point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thrilled to bits. I'm absolutely thrilled to bits. I'm tempted to say it's almost like, almost too on the nose. It's almost like too what we want. <laughs> it's my fear, I guess. And also because you never know what he's going to give you. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. like, you know, I was all up for... Uh, I was all up for uh, Nicolas Cage going John Wick and Pig, and then that was not that film at all. And it was, you know, probably my favorite. I'm sure it's my favorite film of the year. You know? Yeah, it's um, unbelievable. I love him to bits, I have to say. He's As do I. Guy. I was very surprised to see some of the online reaction. I mean, I wasn't surprised, but people were very in favor of it. And I was like, are these the same people who shit on Nicolas Cage every opportunity that they get right. when he makes a, a DTV movie like Willy's Wonderland or something? Um I don't know. Maybe the pendulum That's has great. swung Willie, back. Willie's Wonderland is great. It's great. I thought oh, it was I mean, a ton of fun. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely great. No, I think I. I mean, I know you talk a lot about the uh, the red box, um, you know, sort of movies, yeah. uh, and I won't. I mean, I you know, nothing against John Travolta or Bruce Willis, but I'm not watching. A, I'm certainly not watching many of of their movies. Uh, but Nicolas Cage, you always know. There's always a reason why he's chosen to make a movie, even if it's like a ridiculous reason. Yeah. Um, but there is a, I mean, to do with acting, to do with, um, and I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a lot, and he is both a charming interview uh, and very self-aware and very interested in in the acting of mm-hmm. it all. You know, um, in a way that I'm guessing some of his. Uh, some of his peers were not. It's funny because the great thing is if you're a Nicholas Cage fan working at a national magazine, then you get to interview him a lot because he makes, he makes a lot of films. He does. Um, And it's funny because I think he had, he had, he had some sort of falling out with entertainment weekly years and years and years ago. And uh, over, I can't remember. We wrote, this is before my time. I think we wrote something about he didn't care for him. And there was always this thought that he wouldn't talk to us, but I was talking to him a lot. You know, as I still do. I mean, not a lot, but you know, we're not phone buddies, but um, <laughs> on a fairly regular basis when he had a film coming out. And we would have these feature meetings where I would say, I think we should do a, a Nicolas Cage feature, you know. And then someone would, and this, I think no one was really interested in doing a Nicolas Cage feature, but they would always say, he doesn't talk to Entertainment Weekly, to which I would reply, I spoke to him yesterday. <laughs> You know, those Mandy Mandy interviews are not going to do themselves. Right, right. Did you have an opportunity to see uh, Prisoners of the Ghost Land yet? I did. I, 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 well, see, now much like, I mean, I I, I kind of, it wasn't entirely my cup of tea. Sure. I'd have to say. Um, uh, Nice to see. I mean, it was fine. It was fine. I mean, I guess fine isn't the word for it, but uh, <laughs> I I could see once again you're like, well, I could see why you wanted to do this, right? You know? And and when you and when you hear like him talking about how much he wanted to work with the director, is it Sion Sion Sono? I'm yeah. thinking uh-huh. Sion, and um, you know how he kept you know he kept being attached to the project, even though the director had a heart attack and you know, agreed or suggested that they should shoot in J- Japan rather than uh, Mexico, where they originally... You know, the idea that this guy just turns up and, you know, ambles around and, and buggers off home and picks up his... No, he's like, no. he is invested. And I can't even... Because I, I watched... Because I had never seen what, any of the director's films, and I started watching the films, and I was just totally... Conf- I was bewildered by his by his filmography, I have to say. And then it was one of those rare occasions where even Wikipedia wasn't helping. I can't, like, <laughs> it was like such and such made the acclaimed, you know, film Upskirt about an Upskirt photographer. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, I don't know. And again, I think it's probably just because I'm ill-informed on the subject. But clearly, you know, how much does Nicolas Cage love films that, you know, he knows who this guy is? Right. You know, in, 
Uh, no, I uh, I love him to bits. He's uh, and he occasionally he'll say uh, he'll I'll not trick him, but I'll sort of like ask a question that kind of invites him to say something a bit weird, and then he'll say something a bit weird, and he'll be like, "You got your headline now, then." <laughs> Nicholas Cage, and uh, um, although I interviewed him somewhat recently, and he was talking about the amount of films that he's made, which I think is now like 130 or something. Wow. And he was saying how, because he loves Jerry Lewis, and I guess he was friends with, with Jerry Lewis. And uh, he's like, he's like, well, I what I used to say was, well, people in the olden days, they used to crank out these movies. You know, like no one, no one cared that like Jerry Lewis made like 300 movies. No one thought that was odd. Right. And then one day I was talking to Jerry and I was like, seriously, saying sort of criticized me for making all these movies but you made like 300 movies or whatever Jerry Lewis was like well how many movies have you made and Nicholas Cage was like I made 130 Jerry Lewis is like I've only made like 60 movies <laughs> like you're racing you know you're like 30 or 40 years younger and, and raced past me decades ago so he said he was going to take a bit of a break but um, I don't know what even what that means in in, uh, in Nicholas Cage terms I suspect it's not going to be some Terrence Malick decades long <laughs> I sure hope not if I could stop, because he's in, and then and then like a week afterwards, he was like, it was like he's in Dracula. So. Right. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the great things about being a, a big Nicolas Cage fan is that you get a lot of him every year. You don't have to wait, you know, three years between movies or whatever. He had three movies out this year, and I think they were all interesting and worth seeing. And uh, I'm super excited for whatever he's got next. I know he's got that one where he plays himself. Right. Yes. And I, I don't know much else it. about it. Yeah, I don't know anything else about before, it. Um, but it sounds fascinating. It sounds fascinating, and I think I can say... I haven't seen it, but from what I understand, I think it's maybe not, as with so many... As with Pig, it's maybe not quite what you think it's going to be, um, but uh, possibly better than yeah. you think it would than, than what you think. So um, uh, we'll wait and see. I really haven't seen it, but um, it's, it does sound... The unbearable... What was it? The unbearable sadness of massive talent. The unbearable weight of massive. The unbearable talent. weight of massive talent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it sounded. Uh, it sounds great. I'm all up for it. Yeah, me too. And I'm excited for his Dracula. I'm still sad we didn't get his Superman. Yes, 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 yes. Um, um, I made a. I made a. I once said to him, "Would you ever play a superhero?" And then he pointed out to me he'd made two Ghost Rider movies. Right. Um, I was like, oh, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> um, although, the one, I mean, that was fine. The one, the, I interviewed Ridley Scott about Raised by Wolves, his the TV show he did a year ago or, or so. Two years ago now, I guess. And uh, this was, I, in my mind, this is understandable, but incredibly stupid. So Ridley Scott is known for having come from commercials. But before then, he was a TV director. He, like, directed TV in, like, the 60s. Like, when it was, like, it was, like, the, not the British equivalent of I Love Lucy, but, like, two cops in a room for half an hour <laughs> would be directed by, like, Ridley Scott. But I had blanked this from my mind, um, just because it was so early in his career, I guess, and, and, and bore such little relationship to anything that would be regarded as TV now. So I'm interviewing Ridley Scott about Raised by Wolves. It's going quite well. And then I'm like, uh, so was this your first, you know, what's it like working in TV for the first time? And then Sir Ridley Scott very, very much put me, not put me in my place, but like informed me that he had worked in TV for a full 10 years, like literally, almost literally before I was born. So he wasn't pissed off, but I did feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> I haven't seen Raised by Wolves. It's going to be like, this idiot, how did this guy get a job on Entertainment Week? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, is Raised by Wolves good? Have you seen it? Um, yes, I have. It's, it's peculiar, I would okay. say. And, uh, and, um, and gets more peculiar. Uh, I don't really know. Also, I saw it pre-COVID, so I remember that about as well as I remember sure. anything that happened pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, there was supposed to be, I think they did do a second, second, uh, uh, season, but, um, that has yet to turn up. I mean, okay. Who knows? All right. Yeah. 
Um, well, I don't want to keep you because I know you're in the middle of uh, promoting the book, I, I and you were literally, literally, it, it, it's this or Scrabble with my mom. <laughs> I mean, it's this. But like this, it's this. There will be Scrabble with my mom. I mean, it's this, and then Scrabble with my mom. Got it. So, who uh, routinely beats me at Scrabble? I have to say. Um, oh. Yes, we have a we have a we have a piece of Bourne Village. Two pieces of Bourne Village. Over feeling frisky, and then we play Scrabble. That's the glamorous life of the, uh, at the moment anyway, of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, zom rom com. <laughs> the, the man responsible for you've got red on you, which is uh, I should it's mention. Now available, but yeah, I should point. Sorry, you mentioned, you mentioned, and then I'll mention. What were you going to mention? That that the book is available said, everywhere you get books. Except it's not, because it's actually sold out in the UK, which is which is crazy. But um, you can That's still awesome. get it in America. Yeah. So rush That's out amazing. and get it. Yes. Book Soup in LA. You can plan it in New York. Not sure what's going on in Chicago. I'm sure it was something funky. So. <laughs> um, and where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at uh, if they if they if they want to they want to find out more about my Short of the Dead book. Uh, they can follow me at uh, at Clark Collis on Twitter. Or at Clark Collis on Instagram, or Clark Collis at Facebook. Turn up and, and say ho, say hello, and uh, uh, don't be too mean about my my rambling and incoherent performance on this on this podcast. <laughs> no, this was super fun, and you have uh, an open invitation to come back anytime because this was a blast. That's that's very sweet. So you're glad we did Long Good Friday in the end? Uh, yeah, I was definitely. Gen- genuinely concerned, to be honest with you. Um, but no, it was it was a fun revisit, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun fun talking to you about it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thanks again, Clark. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.